Welcome to all those listening to the Insight Through Experience podcast, a podcast created for both the operators in OTC as well as operators in external units thinking about joining the organization. In these podcasts, we're going to be bringing you some highly successful operators, leaders, and training specialists who will be revealing their tools, tips, and techniques to help you achieve peak levels of performance. Now, sit back, take some notes, and use their experience as stepping stones for your personal success. You are listening to the Insight Through Experience Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Inside Through Experience podcast, everybody. This is season two, episode three. This week we have Mitch in the house. Mitch is a special tactics officer inside Special Warfare, and he just graduated our operator training course back in February and is now leading on the operational troops here inside the organization. Mitch, welcome to the podcast. Trey, I appreciate you having me out. Um, looking forward to having a good discussion. A couple of people have given me your name as somebody that's a must-have on the show, so I am fortunate. I feel fortunate that we have you on this week. So, with that said, give the audience a brief summary of of your life up to this point and how you ended up as a as a special tactics officer inside of special warfare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely was a uh, long path uh, getting here. I uh, grew up in Minnesota um, on a small uh, small little farm town uh, called Monticello. And uh, we had about 50 acres, a uh, little bit of uh, some horses. We did uh, corn, soybean, wheat, um, hay and alfalfa and stuff like that on the uh, back pastures. But grew up, I always thought I was going to be a hockey player. And um, ended up leaving home at a young age. I was 16 when I went and pursued junior hockey. Uh, I was just uh, kind of always looking for that bigger and better thing and uh, better competition and, and just surrounding yourselves with with people who are the best at what they do. And so that, that drove me to travel the country, play junior hockey for three years. I a little bit of a suitcase packed around. I did uh, 10 different billet families in 10 different locations over the course of three years. So roughly about every three months, you know, changing, uh, changing locations due to trades, due to um, drafts or, or whatever um, kind of, how that worked out, but I uh, really enjoyed traveling, seeing the country. And um, when it came to looking at uh, college, I got a couple of recruiting options. I uh, was contacted by University of Minnesota Duluth, um, and I was contacted by the United States Air Force Academy, and ended up going out on a visit to the Air Force Academy. And it was uh, it was pretty uh, pretty amazing to kind of see what was going on out there and. Uh, you know, I always envisioned myself following in my dad's footsteps or my uncle and uh, godfather all went to Minnesota Duluth and, and played hockey up there and had uh, pretty amazing careers. But um, after taking that visit to the academy, it was kind of cool to see what, what other options are out there for uh, college experience, you know, getting to do jump programs, getting to do some flying programs, getting to travel the world. Um, I did a sea slip abroad in, in France where I kind of got to work on French and um, got to do airborne, I think it's 490, um, which is, to my knowledge, the only place in the world that you can um, do three days of training and then jump out of the airplane on your own, um, you know, and pull your own chute. And so that was pretty crazy. And uh, I had since then, I've definitely come a long way in my airborne skills. I was uh, definitely waffling around out there, but yeah. So I ended up going to the academy, and 
um, even even going to the academy, I kind of had in the back of my mind that I was going to leave after my sophomore year and, and continue to pursue hockey. And um, you're not committed to the Air Force until you show up for classes your junior year. And so you kind of have that out in the back of your mind all the way through your sophomore year. After my sophomore year, I ended up sustaining some pretty, uh, pretty serious injuries. I was hit from behind uh, at the start of my sophomore year. Uh, ended up getting, I think, 12, uh, 12 stitches over over my uh, right eye. And then I was out cold for about 10 minutes. And so I had to kind of undergo some serious concussion protocol where wasn't allowed to work out, wasn't allowed to get my heart rate over 100 beats per minute for about three, three, four months. And then um, ended up getting cleared for exercise while we were still in the season. Um, and I was brought right back into the lineup and I ended up uh, separating my left shoulder on a Friday night and my right shoulder on a Saturday night. And wow. um, <laughs> kind of at that point I was like, well, I don't, uh, maybe hockey is not a uh, sure thing as I thought it would be, you know, and um, my, my dad had uh, been drafted to Hartford Whalers and when he was in college and he ended up blowing out his knee and, and um, that was the end of his, his uh, professional hockey you know, a dream. And, um, so I kind of had that in the back of my mind that, you know, I'm finishing college is probably a good idea. And right now I'm guaranteed a job. And, and I, I did enjoy kind of the thought of being in the military and getting to do something bigger than, bigger than myself and, um, having kind of some sort of impact on a, on a global scale. And so that, that that's kind of the allure that kept me there. And, when, uh, when did you hear about special tactics? Um, was that at the academy, or when did that come about? You know what? I I did hear a little bit about it through my roommate at the time, my uh, junior and senior year. His name's uh, Dan, but he he ended up trying out at the academy, getting picked up. Um, one of my best friends, and he he uh, he was talking to me about it, and I was like, man, that sounds pretty amazing, but. Uh, it seemed like a lot of running and a lot of swimming and he was a track guy at the time so he was pretty good at that and that was you know I was like well it'd be awesome to kind of get out and do that and so I went to phase zero which was the academy's um, kind of prep course you know for that but I was still on the hockey team at the time and um, schedules kind of conflicted I missed a meeting um, went to one screener you know got my got my butt kicked in that and then uh, they had a meeting at some point, which I had to miss due to practice, and uh, the guys running that told me I wasn't taking it seriously enough, and they uh, they booted me along my way. Just because um, you missed that one meeting? Just because I missed that one meeting, so I was kind of like, oh, God, but, you know, so I put that on the back burner, and I'm like, maybe uh, maybe Pilot will be, be a good gig for me, and, um, you know, because I, I still wanted to have a successful uh, senior year of hockey, and and pursue that and the training uh for hockey and the training for you know still selection was a little bit different you know you're looking at that long endurance style athlete as opposed to you know explosive uh kind of training that we do for hockey and so i didn't uh kind of put it on the back burner after that and then um ended up dropping uh 91 T or 92 T zero, which is a pilot trainee, um, coming out of the Academy. And I requested casual status at the Academy to stay on as a strength and conditioning coach. 
and ended up working in the uh, strength and conditioning realm for about a year. Uh, and kind of how that works is so many pilots have dropped out of the academy when uh, you have an academy graduation that they have to phase people in yeah. to start uh, initial pilot training. And so I opted to have a later reporting date so that I could just kind of uh, pursue a uh, strength conditioning um, qualifications and, and stuff like that. And I enjoyed working with uh, Buck and, and uh, the uh, guys in the uh, strength conditioning world. How old are you at this time? Sports. Is this you 24 at this time? Like, um, yeah, I'm about 24, 24, wow. 25. Uh, so, yeah, definitely getting up there. You know, you think when you're a kid, you're like, shit, I'll have it figured out by the time I'm, yeah. you know, 22. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 30 now and still still figuring it out. But, yeah, so I went to initial flight training um, down at Pueblo um, in January while I was still working at the academy um, was supposed to PCS to Laughlin Air Force Base to start UPT in May and went to initial flight training um, had a blast flying um, got to proficiency advanced some flights and so I um, felt pretty comfortable in the uh, in the aircraft and enjoyed doing it but it just didn't feel like the end all be all it felt like a hobby it didn't feel like I was applying what I thought were my strengths at the time to um, to the military, and and I, I felt at the time that anybody um, could come into my shoes and, and do what I did in the cockpit and be exactly the same as me. And so, for me, there wasn't any uh, ability to really stand out or um, use critical thinking to kind of influence things. That uh, everything had a checklist, everything um, was pretty black and white on what you were doing, and. Um, I was also looking at, you know, the only thing I was excited about flying was the A-10 at the time, and, and Congress was putting out that they're shutting that down. That's no longer going to be a thing, which we found out wasn't wasn't accurate, still a thing. <laughs> and then um, they also dropped it uh, due to RPA, uh, remotely piloted aircraft shortages. Uh, 50% were going to get non-volved into the RPA uh, route. And that didn't sound that attractive to me either. And yeah. uh, so I was kind of debating what I wanted to track, heavies, uh, fighters, or, or helicopters. And I uh, started to interact a lot more with uh, another guy I ended up living with down the road. His name was Zach, um, who was a current stow at the time at the 2-3. And um, I met him through, uh, knew him through his uh, girlfriend at the time and went on a ski trip with him. And I was extremely impressed by just how he held himself, how he carried himself, you know, um, the way that he interacted with people. And, and um, I started talking to him about Stowe again and started, you know, I'm diving into that. And I'm like, at that time, you know, have been removed from college sports for for about a year and I've been missing that team camaraderie and that that team lifestyle and um, so at that point I knew you know that 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 was the uh, route for me but I had already started pilot training um, through IFS and was supposed to PCS to Laughlin Air Force Base in the spring um, but I started looking at routes it was like hey I'm gonna put in a package anyway and uh, I know the I think it was called phase two at the time. So I put in my package and there's a 
part of the uh, package where you need an MFR stating that you you got a release from your functional. I, I couldn't uh, couldn't couldn't get that, and so I wrote my own MFR and I said that I had reached out to him, um, still awaiting an answer, and um, if if in the event I get picked up, we'll we'll work through it at that time. And uh, for whatever reason, my package got you know um, passed passed through and. Um, even though I was being told I, I couldn't go because I didn't complete my initial training in my current AFSC and I wasn't eligible for a reclass or to try out for another job, especially because pilot at that time was uh, critically manned. Yeah. But um, I asked the lady who was telling me I couldn't uh, for, you know, hey, show me in writing where it says I can't go down and try out and she could never produce. And we just happened to be on spring break during selection, so I went down and tried out. Um, got released from my boss at the academy. He was like, yeah, go down, do your thing. Um, ended up getting picked up and then um, had to go to a reclass board. And so it was a uh, it definitely definitely a uh, pretty unique uh, journey. You know, it wasn't something that I always had picked out, but I was, I was definitely drawn to that team lifestyle, the team camaraderie, I was drawn to um, getting to look at and solve unique problem sets and um, just the ability to think critically and logically and, and, and demonstrate that and apply it to something that has uh, rippling effects across across the globe, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. I was going to ask you, and you just you just summarized them, but what those strengths were that you saw in yourself that that, that pilot career field wasn't going to allow you, but you just summed it up, and I think I think that's a perfect summation of what a lot of guys struggle with, especially officers that I talk to of um, who are trying to figure out what's right for them. Um, pilot always sounds like a good option until it's just you in that cockpit alone and they're in a team surrounding you. And, you know, that's, that can be a lonely world, um, especially for a guy like you who grew up inside the hockey community. A, I haven't heard that whole story. So uh, the last 10 minutes have been, Awesome. I think our listeners will get a lot out of your story and that circuitous route that you had to take to end up where you are. Let me ask you this. Do you feel like you're home now or do you like, is there still something there that's missing um, when it comes to being a stow? You know what? I think um, just myself personally, I've always, always been seeking, um, you know, I left home at 16, um, seeking out, you know, to surround myself with the best and, and seeking out, you know, greener pastures. And I, I think that's a hard thing to to get over um i definitely am very happy to be where i'm at now and um i i feel like i'm in a position now where i can make some real impacts and um really influence some things that um i never thought i'd have the uh, grasp on you know years ago but you know i mean there, there's always a little piece of you that's like well what else is out there but um yeah i mean that that's what drove me up here, and um, so I think that's a part of a lot of us who are are here. Is we're always hungry for more, hungry to get our hands into, you know, whatever we deem um, is that next calling. But yeah, right now I'm uh, plenty content with where I'm at. Yeah, I think some of the best officers that I have worked with and for in my career um, have been those who who aren't just settling for what they have now, who aren't happy with status quo all the time. Doesn't mean you know, I'm looking for greener pastures every day as well. But to me, I think that keeps me sharp. That keeps me pushing forward and trying to learn new things. And I I like what you said there. And I think that just shows, at least for me, it shows the value that you bring to the organization of 
you're not going to sell, you're not going to lean back on, on what you've accomplished and you're going to keep pushing us into new realms. And I think that's what makes the people we hire and run through our process and then put on the teams or the troops, man, that's valuable. That's valuable to a organization who has to solve problems for the nation. And I'm liking what you're saying there. I appreciate it. Let me ask you this. So give me the history when you came in, uh, you made it through uh, the pipeline. What unit did you go to? So I finished up the uh, pipeline and ended up um, going to my first, uh, so you get a selection, uh, you know, hey, one through whatever, where you want to go. And I put um, Japan at the uh, time and kind of the global climate at the time. Uh, North Korea was kind of spinning up. Um, You know, uh, China has always been at, you know, the forefront of our focus. And uh, so I ended up going to the 320th uh, out at Kadena Air Force Base, Japan. How is that for an officer role? How is that for um, getting some leadership reps underneath your belt? You know what? It was um, it was definitely uh, a non-typical uh, route. You know, typically a lot of younger officers spend their, their time stateside first and get uh, kind of that uh, Middle Eastern uh, taste. And that I had a very unique opportunity where I went uh, and I fell under uh, our third troop at uh, Kadena Air Force Base. And we were kind of looking at a newer capability in the time um, across the Air Force. And we were also looking at a lot more global uh, scale problem sets. And I think that gave me a unique perspective on kind of what else is out there. I think uh, all of us are very familiar with uh, JTAC missions, with uh, kind of the missions, uh, CSAR, um, but uh, there's definitely a lot more out there uh, for for us to get involved in, and I think that gave me a unique flavor. I uh, got to do some hum- humanitarian aid, disaster relief uh, type missions, and, and I think that gave me uh, very good leadership experience. You know, I got to lead uh, people from multiple countries. I uh, led JSETs, led JCS exercises, and got to be mission commanders for a lot of those type of things worked in embassies, you know, worked uh, liaising with other uh, general officer level militaries. And um, so I think it was kind of that plethora of experience. I was lucky enough to get my JTAC rating out there. And um, so I, I think I got a pretty good smattering of, of just about everything. Yeah, that sounds like some incredible experience. What led you uh, to see the 724s as, as the next step in your career ladder? You know what, uh, kind of like what we were talking about, uh, 724 was always kind of mentioned. I, I remember going through the pipeline uh, as a stow. We were doing rucks around uh, Pope uh, Airfield, and every time we'd always pass a 724, you know, the, the instructors would point it out. And it was just kind of that place that was shrouded in mystery and, and, and something that, you know, I mean, hey, this is the best of the best, you know, and, and you always kind of wonder if you, if you have what it takes to get there. Um, and, and it, it's exciting, you know, and, and um, the things that they get, get to do and, and the resources and just uh, everything I was told at the time is, hey, you're surrounded by guys who are excited to be there, um, surrounded by guys who are continually striving to be better at their jobs, and your support personnel are, are amazing, and, and everybody in the organization from top to bottom is, is striving towards a common goal. And so that, that was something that was very attractive to me. I think at the white side units you get, um, you do have those, uh, 
people as well, and, and there's some great teams that I've been a part of on that side. But um, as far as being surrounded by uh, very deep pockets of money to sustain the training that you need to do, to uh, buy the equipment that you need to do, and then uh, every once in a while you'll you'll come across a guy at a Whiteside unit who's who's content. You know, he's he's reached the pinnacle of his career and he, he's content with just kind of riding it out and. Um, I wanted to be surrounded by everybody who was pulling the same direction. Love it. So when you decided to put in your application um, and we said, yes, we're going to bring you to selection, how'd you, how did you prepare for that? What is, what's going on in Mitch's mind as he's sitting in Okinawa? How are you balancing those other tasks? Because it sounds like you were pretty busy. How are you managing those tasks, preparing for selection? And what did that look like? Yeah, it was definitely, uh, it was a big task. Um, I'd like to think I stay pretty pretty good in shape on a daily basis, but um, you know, I mean, the selection in itself. Everybody talks about what a bear that is, and so I knew I had to get to the peak of, of where I was, and and I needed to do that uh, smartly, you know, so that you're not coming in with with injuries. And that was some of the best advice that I'd gotten was um, at the end of the day, you want to be coming in fresh, you want to be coming in healthy. And, uh, the whole point of training up for that is not to drive yourself into the ground and, and show up, you know, at 50%. And so I, I took, you know, just a kind of an athlete style approach to the way I balanced my life and the way I organized and kind of broke it into diet, sleep and programming. And, um, Diet was a huge thing, just ensuring your body had enough calories to, to sustain, especially on top of uh, not only was working out and preparing uh, mentally and physically and uh, educationally for this selection a job in itself, but a lot of us have jobs outside of that that um, require 100% of our attention as well. And so uh, the two big things I wanted to focus on during uh, that time period, I, I chose a 11-week training program and so I think uh, started that about 12 weeks out from selection and um, I made sure every night no matter what time I had to get up that next day to fit in um, whatever I had I, I was going to get eight hours of sleep and that was uh, so I, you know I'm harder to do if you got family um, a little bit easier to do if you're you know a single guy but um, it, 11 weeks is definitely something you can cut out and, and do that and so some nights I was going to bed at seven o'clock and, and waking up at, you know, three thirty, four o'clock to get rucks in before work. I would organize and try and get my cardio in in the morning while it was still cool. In Okinawa, about seven o'clock in the morning, it was, you know, 85, 90, 95 degrees, hundred percent humidity. And so that wow. made training tough, but it, it was good. There was a couple guys I was training with at the time and, um, first few weeks we were all about the same but um, I was pretty religious about my sleep and diet where I'd wake up you know halfway through the night pound a protein shake go back to bed and um, ensure that my body had what it needed to rebuild itself and I, I felt fantastic actually um, it was a super gradual training program where I didn't feel run down really at all and, and if I ever did feel a little bit mentally tired I'd, I'd cut out maybe the swim or um, something smaller, but I, I made sure that no matter what, I always hit the lifts that I had scheduled and the rucks that I had scheduled. When you're looking at prepping uh, with rucking, a lot of guys would just put plates into their pack. And, and one of the things that I did mm -hmm. that I think helped me out extremely 
just a ton was practicing like I played. And so I, I packed out my ruck per the pack out um, from the year prior um, with everything that was in it. And then I would, you know, add stuff to make sure that w- the weights were on, on, uh, on track with what my program was saying, but getting used to having snacks accessible, getting used to where your stuff is and, and working out of that, that ruck is extremely important because when you're scrambling to find stuff in your ruck during selection, or you're scrambling to do stuff. Um, if you had spent all that prep time working out of that ruck, I mean, it, it's second nature and that's just another thing that you don't have to worry about. And so I thought that was kind of a game changer for me was um, using a real ruck, using my real gear, packing it out on the rucks, actually um, getting in the habit of, of eating um, during your rucks. And that, I think that was something that saved me is I had these little kidney pouches that I kept on my uh, cummerbund and um, just having, you know, packets of jelly, you know, something with a little bit of sugar to keep you going. I remember during getting towards the end, you, you kicked me and I had just about fallen asleep and, and, you know, you know, we're like, Hey, you doing all right? And I'm like, uh, you know, yeah, I'm doing good, but I was feeling a little lightheaded, pounding some peanut butter and jelly. And that, that brought me right back into it. And, um, had I not that had that accessible, I, who knows? Yeah. It's a, such a good point of just practicing the way it's going to go down because again, we always talk about it, but that's things you control. That's things that you can control inside environment of chaos. And if you don't practice controlling that before you get there, you're going to take off on some of these events that we're going to send you on. And you're going to have to stop to get your rucksack off your back just to get a snack out. And it's just slowing you down. It's nothing's um, smooth out and it's going to affect your time. It's going to affect how you're performing. And eventually yeah. your priorities of work are going to suffer. And if the priorities of work suffered, that means at some point you're going to go down probably because you're not feeding the machine or 100%. hydrating the machine like you should be. So when you were going through selection, and I would argue, and I think you would agree, no matter how much you prepare, it's going to suck at some point. But what what was on your mind? What was, Did you ever have a time where you're like, I might should have focused on this piece a little bit more, or maybe some more mental prep would have helped? Anything like that creep up when you were going through? You know what? Physically, I felt pretty good. I think um, getting into kind of uh, sled push type, type things. I, I could have definitely focused on that a little bit more. Um, I don't think I had as big an engine as I would have liked to have in, in mm. those types of events. But um, really, if I could go back and do it again, it would have been a, specifically for me as an officer, just a more deliberate focus on, on mission planning, on joint staff, on um, kind of the ins and outs of our job. And I think that's uh, something pertinent to everybody is, is at the end of the day, uh, you guys are looking at me as the selection candidate based off of how I am as an officer, not as a PGA, not as a controller. And um, likewise for controllers, uh, you should be very smart on your job set and your job skills and, and your medals. Uh, so your mission essential tasks. And um, th- those are definitely things things you want to focus on. Um, I think mission planning specifically for me, um, you know, I mean, you look at uh, just that hasty style, ensuring that you know how to put together a, a, a CONOP, a, a Warno, you know, that, that whole process and how that, how that follows. And then um, just thinking critically about uh, different things, you know, it's always good to get mission planning reps, but uh, a lot of the events and selection, you're, you're, utilized as as you are uh 
back in garrison as a officer. So I think um, some guys, when we say mental prep, some guys mistake that for a whole lot of um, mystical stuff that you can do with your mind. What I would say mental prep is for our selection process is just what you said. Outfit yourself with the core knowledge that you should show up with as an officer or as an enlisted guy. And that's going to free up bandwidth when it's time to do other things. When you're inside that mission planning now, at least you have the basics down. You can focus on the other things instead of being overwhelmed with, oh, my God, what format should we use? Should we follow this? And I think to me that's that's a good mental prep um, piece of advice of just know the basics when you come up and everything and have that solid engine that you're talking about when it comes to physical fitness. And you're going to have so much bandwidth to do things with as you're going through the process. A hundred percent. And I think that I was in decent enough physical shape where I wasn't uh, always in the red. Um, and so that, that was able to free up a lot of mental bandwidth for me to think critically and problem solve and, and uh, delegate tasks. And I think so being in very, very good shape uh, is extremely important in, in alleviating some of that, like you said, and then just being, uh, if, if the basics are muscle memory, that's just uh, stuff that you don't need to worry about or focus on. And at the end of the day, I think I came into selection with the kind of mindset that um, despite my experiences at the 320th, I knew I was relatively young as an officer. I think I had just pinned on captain um, a year prior, uh, so I was you know, a brand new captain. Um, somebody relatively new you know, in his first assignment to the career field, and um, most people told me to kind of wait, do another rip at a stateside unit, garnish that experience, and then apply myself uh, for the 20, you know, 724. But um, I, I was excited to just as a leadership experience and, and just as a growing opportunity, you know, to learn a little bit about myself, see if I still had what it takes, kind of get my my stuff kicked in for a little bit. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I mean, I, I knew I was going to learn some stuff through the process. And so I think through the entire process I was uh, kind of in that student mindset what they kind of teach you about uh, when you come up here for uh, your IFAM week but um, I, I was just excited to learn excited to grow excited to gain some experience and, and garnish some feedback from from guys who are doing doing things at the highest level yeah I think um, man all good stuff as an officer when you came through you came through with a bunch of officers too I say a bunch for us having three or four officers in in one selection class is a lot. How was that coming in? What advice would you give other officers who find themselves surrounded by three or four other o's because um, I think sometimes it feels like a knife fight uh, to who who when am I when's my turn to stand up as a leader? How was that experience for you and and what's some of that advice? Yeah, I think just one, being comfortable in your shoes, uh, comfortable with your leadership style and who you are. Um, it is a job interview, and so you want to put your best foot forward and look for opportunities to step forth and lead. But at the same time, um, if you have four officers each trying to kind of run their own ship, it's going to be difficult. And so I think early on, we kind of delegated tasks and, and put guys in charge of certain things. And then um, throughout the process, you'll get cycled into leadership uh, positions and, and have the opportunity to showcase what you bring to the team. But at the end of the day, you're going to have uh, a group of guys who, who need leadership, who are looking for you to direct and, and do your job as a ground force commander or, or as an officer in, in general, and just um, be clear, concise with what you're doing and, and put forth, you know, good, good marching orders. And 
just be there for, for guys. We had a couple guys who, you know, struggled throughout the process and, and were doubting themselves and, and second guessing. And, um, I think just being there and, and being that good leader and that good mentor and, and somebody who can just, just help the guys out. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we're here for is, is ensuring the guys have what they need to go forth and, and be successful. And so I don't really think that changes in selection or in garrison or deployed. I mean, um, just be comfortable with who you are, and and when you get a chance to step forward, step up, and, and do what you have. Yeah, beautiful, love it. Uh, like I remember very well you coming through, and I remember very well you being a real strong candidate. But I know all of us that go through the process at some point have a lowest point mentally. When was that for you, and how did you pull <laughs> yourself out of that? I mean, I think. Uh, the whole selection, you're pretty sleeped up the whole time. So I, you know, I, you really don't remember much, but that is the one thing that I remember vividly to this day is uh, my low point. Um, everybody had it. And uh, once you're through, it's kind of funny to talk about with the other guys, you know, because uh, I think out of most of the guys I talked to, it came at about a similar time for just about everybody. I don't know if that's by design, but you, you know what's coming, you know you're going to get uh, dumped on and they're going to tell you, you know, you're the worst in the world and we're not sure if you're going to get picked up, but uh, every time hearing it still hurts, you know, and you're just like, you're coming up there because you, you want to be up there, you want to be the best and you want to be something that they want and, and need and um, so hearing you're not that or hearing your shortfalls either, you know, and I, I was pretty aware of some of my shortfalls and it's funny cause they brought me in. Um, we're talking about, you know, talking about give me feedback very bluntly and, um, everything they had, I had written down on my notebook, uh, from the prior week, you know, or a week and a half. And, um, so it was things I was aware of. And so it was nothing that they were bringing up that I didn't already know, but yeah, it, it, it hurt. And, um, I just remember thinking, I was like, man, like, am I wasting these guys' time? And, and so, you know, I mean, you just got to dig deep at that point and be like, you know what, I, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm learning, I'm experiencing good experiences, and, and if I'm not a fit, I'm not a fit, and I get to learn some valuable lessons, but um, just knowing how to pick yourself back up and, and shake it off, and I think in that aspect, having a short-term memory and uh, just being somebody who bounces back from adversity is, is important. Yeah, love it. And um, for those who've been through the process that are listening to your low point, I think about 90% of them will jump on board to that same experience was probably at least if it wasn't their lowest point, it was dang near their lowest point. And again, by design, but it's also, I think what you said is important to remember is it isn't, it isn't the organization playing games. It's just them being blunt with you of what, how we're perceiving you. And I think sometimes now that you say it and I know my personality, right? So if I came into that thing, I think hopefully those things that I have written in my notebook, like you said, you were very aware of, of the shortfalls. I'm thinking well, maybe they didn't see them all. Maybe, maybe they're not tracking what I know I'm short in. And then you walk out of there and you're like, Oh my God, they know more than what I was even tracking. <laughs> and then yeah. it's like, where do I, where do I go from here? But it's just like you said, the only place to go is to pick yourself up, shake off the past, take what feedback that you were given and apply it. What else is there? Like, it's really a simple equation if you break it down there, if you can get past it mentally. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, it's definitely an experience that you share with everybody who goes through that is, you know, kind of fun to laugh on now, but it, it definitely was a uh, 
definitely was tough at the time. Yeah, it's, and I love kind of what you said right there, too, because it is the guys that you go through selection with, there's something, there's a common bond that we all share at the organization and all these elite organizations um, that you went through that process. And then OTC moves into, that's another seven, eight months where you're building a bond. Like the guys I went through OTC with, uh, those guys are special to me in ways that nobody else is. And we'll get into OTC here in a minute, but let me know, what was it like when the boss looked across the table at you or came into the room and said, hey, you guys made it. We are bringing you to OTC um, and to try to be a member of the 724. What did that feel like to you, Mitch? Yeah, it was a complete rush. I mean, it, um, it was just very gratifying to uh, have worked that hard for you know the months leading up to that and to know that you showcased enough uh, that they saw some potential in you and it, mainly it was exciting because um, after seeing how professionally selection was run um, I was I was convinced that uh, the 724 was the place to be you know um, I wanted to be up there I wanted to be surrounded by that level of professionalism and uh, that amount of resources and so um, getting told I was picked up was yeah definitely a, a high uh, before we leave the selection line of effort, um, you said something earlier that I think is important. You said you were getting some feedback from some places as you were leaving or getting thinking about leaving Okinawa or what, whatever your next move was going to be of, hey, maybe maybe go to one more assignment before you come up. And this scares me out there because it's something I can't control and I wish I could. But yep. There are some guys sitting out there who have amazing talent and amazing skills and can come up and learn fast, but they're getting told the same thing. You now have a voice, hopefully, out there to every special warfare officer out there. What would you tell them um, from your experience? I don't think you can. Um, you know, I think it's really whether or not you're trainable and whether or not you have the attributes that you guys are looking for. Um, I don't think it's necessarily... Uh, combat experience that gets you in the door. Um, I didn't have any, you know, coming in. Um, was deployed to a couple different locations and, and never saw never saw combat. So I don't. That that was one of the things I was uh, pretty sensitive about coming up. Was like, you know, there's, there's zero chance I got a got a shot doing it. And maybe these guys are right, but you know what? Um, we still have a lot to offer, you know. And it, it's us coming up at a good age where we can be morphed and bring our perspective uh to the command is important and i think already being in the position i'm in i'm i'm bringing uh perspective that uh, a lot of guys don't have because I, i've come from a different background and i think that's healthy yeah i love it and also you know the other arguable point there is the longer you wait as an officer we all know you guys have your development timelines too that the air force doesn't waver on so Get up there early. Get get three or four years um, running in the capacity at the unit before the Air Force comes calling and you have to start going out and doing doing your schools and everything else. It's just a perfect time. The later you wait, the more that's going to creep in right when you're getting your troop leadership time and, and other things. So, you know, it doesn't work out for everybody. But what I do know and what you said, and I, I loved when you said it was, whether you got picked up or not, it's gonna it's gonna make you better. It's gonna give you some self awareness that you didn't have before you came, and you'll be a better officer and leader when you leave the process, at least. And maybe maybe come back again and try it again, like Nick last time. He 
he went through your selection and then uh, came back a year later and was just yep. rock solid that second time. Yeah, and that's that's awesome. Um, I was glad to hear he uh, had a good showing, um, super good guy. And, yeah, I mean, I remember having a deliberate conversation um, when we were kind of waiting to find out what the verdict was and talking to some of the guys, being like, hey, was this, you know, are you guys glad he came up, What, no matter how this shakes out? And um, everybody had the same response. It was, yeah, super Super glad I came up. I think I've grown as an individual, grown as a leader. Uh, I have a better understanding of my shortfalls. And I think we're all kind of excited to go home and, and bring that back and shore that up and, and grow. And so at that time, not knowing whether I was picked up or not, I was, I was happy I came. Love it. All right, so you get orders. You have to move halfway across the world. Um, you have to start OTC in the summer of nineteen. What were you excited about and what were some of the fears or concerns that you had um, as you were transitioning uh, to start OTC? You know, and I think just with, you know, starting any course, starting any new assignment, uh, just a fear of the unknown. You don't know how it's going to be. Is this going to be, you know, combat control school all over again? Am I going to be, you know, grassing gorillas and getting screamed at, you know, uh, what, what are my teammates going to be like? Are they going to be dudes who I, I want to hang out with, who, you know, we have that mutual respect with, is this going to be a grind or is there going to be, you know, warring personalities, but uh, kind of what you were alluding to earlier is that you have a very close connection with that selection team and you have a very close connection with your green team. And it was the same with me where, I mean, these guys are my best friends. You know, we got together for a barbecue right after the bat and kind of broke the ice and met everybody families and um, my wife is super close with all the wives and I'm super close with all the guys and, and their families and so it was just an unbelievable experience that uh, you were nervous coming into it because because the unknowns but I thought it was a fantastic experience everything was still extremely professionally run you know you're not going through the pipeline again you're going through a training course to get you ready to operate at the tier one level and and that was reflected in in the training that we did. All right. So being an officer coming in and an officer who you said admitted yourself, didn't have a lot of experience, any fears coming from that as you're stepping into some dudes who've been in the, the operational world for 10 plus years? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I mean, uh, you know, you're not going to be the most experienced, you know, I mean, that that's kind of the way we exist as officers is, is we are not the subject matter experts. And, and I had to remind myself of that continuously that what we need to be good at is, is recognizing who knows what they're talking about, putting them in positions to influence an outcome, um, delegating and, and clearly articulating problem sets and allocating your assets to them accordingly. And so I think a lot of officers get wrapped around the axle being like, well, I need to be the best at, and, and you do, you do need to lead from the front and you need to, you know, practice what you preach per se. But at the end of the day, what we need to excel at is asset allocation, um, applying guys to their strengths, showing up their weaknesses, and then just ensuring the mission gets done. And I don't think you need experience to do that. You just need an understanding of how things need to run and operate. And, um, you know, with, with my lack of experience comparatively to some of these guys, I, I still think I was a strong asset. Awesome. Did you ever beat anybody shooting? 
Like I know there's some competition. I know Mitch didn't grow up the way he did and you step out on the firing line at a shooting school or a course and not be competitive as hell. You know what? I, that's funny you say that. That's uh, one of the things I still get shit about to this day. Um, we uh, So we went out and did a shooting course, which honestly the whole training, man, is amazing. It, it's just fantastic how it runs. It was the first time I had been a part of training where I didn't have to worry about scheduling, worry about you know, or is everybody going to show up? Is everything good? The, the whole green team, you just show up and you train, and it was it was pretty pretty nice, you know, to not have to worry about ORMs, not have to worry about, you know, is everything coming together? You just showed up, you got to do your thing. And so um, I definitely grew as an operator, grew as a shooter, and we did, uh, we did some... <laughs> some competitions and it seemed like every time I would finish second and uh, one of my guys, Al, would finish first by one shot every <laughs> single time. And so the top dude would get hats. And every time I thought I'd had it, sure enough, Al had one more point than I had. And so I, uh, but yeah, I definitely would say I, I, I did well. You know, we, we had some guys who were just fantastic shots. And uh, I think that Kind of comes with the uh, comes with the territory when you're up here at a uh, high level unit, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I made a fool of myself, but the guys are always going to give me shit that I didn't uh, didn't beat out Al. Oh, that's funny. So, talking about your guys and the guys you went through with, what are some things that you you watched going through and, and you saw some of those traits come out in the guys that just made them successful? Just you see. These guys, every day they're doing this, and they are just exceeding all expectations in performance. What are some of those things? You know what? Um, there were definitely points in the uh, training course that we we arguably weren't exceeding, you know, every standard. And, and so just like with selection there, you know, you're going to get down on yourself at times. You're going to wish you as a team or you as an individual were performing better, but um, it's a learning experience. And so as long as you're continuing your trajectory and growing, um, I think I think that's the most important thing And reminding guys that, that this course is designed to bring you up to that level. You don't need to be at that level now. Um, and there are standards that you need to hit before you graduate. But this whole time, this whole you know, nine, uh, 10 months, whatever they make it is, is your opportunity to grow and learn so that you can apply what you learn and what you have to, to the operational unit. Yeah. I think, um, I think just reminding guys that, and, um, just understanding that each block that you go through is not just a thing that you're trying, you're not just trying to check that box. Those are skills you're looking to acquire and hone, um, and build upon and collect with you as you go through. And so keeping that mentality was something that we definitely wanted guys to focus on is you're not just checking the box, you're, you're acquiring skills and growing. And so really what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. Yeah. And just having the, uh, just having the ability to push yourself to the failure line and guys, guys in our career fields, they don't fail much. And it's, it's tough. It's tough for the guys who've been in a while and now they're thrown back into this environment to where they're getting pushed to that failure line. And some people like to recede back into the comfort and, and just try to just try to be successful and, and not show the weakness. But the weakness is where the growth comes from. So such good points there, man. How did you balance being a leader 
and also being a student. So you talked about it briefly, but I think it's important for the officers to come up to realize how that how that works in our OTC process, because you guys are kind of running as a troop, um, but you're also having to keep up with the training too. So how, what was Mitch's tips for success there? You know what, just um, you should run it no different than you would a troop at any um, any other unit, you know, deliver your expectations as a leader and set those left and right lines that the guys know and kind of standardize their expectations for what you expect, what your red lines are so that they know not to cross them and then uh, put out guidance for how you, you know, expect this, this troop to operate. I mean, this is a good experience for guys to slip into, um, senior enlisted advisor or SEA or SEL, whatever, uh, whatever we're calling it these days. Um, basically that truth chief, uh, section, that's a good leadership experience for some of your more senior guys. And then same with element leader positions. That's a good opportunity for you to mentor them and, and lead them. And you get a lot of guys coming over from the RQSs and from what I've seen is they're organized, uh, and more of a CSAR, you know, construct, which makes sense. But now that you come up to green team, you're, you're constructed in more of a troop construct. And, and so it's just important laying out the expectations and roles and responsibilities for people in each of those either element lead or team lead uh, positions. Um, what was a unique challenge uh, for us is because of the way that the OTC training pipeline is laid out, you do your core skills and then you break out and do your individual skills and so there was a period of time where you didn't have much interaction the arms went and did uh, ground force commander block for a few weeks uh, the controllers were doing their combat controller related duties and then the pjs were working on on their pga skill sets and so managing and leading a team that is dispersed across the united states doing training uh, on three different fronts was a unique problem set that we had to kind of work through. How did you interact with the cadre with that? Like, how was, what was your tie into the cadre um, when you're trying to manage? Cause they're also trying to manage the training plan. Um, they're leaning on you guys to help manage the troop or to manage the troop, not help. I mean, you're actually running your troop. Um, what was that relationship like with the cadre and how did y'all manage that? You know what? We put out the expectation early on that at the end of the day, these, these guys have the job and uh, the task to train us up and get us ready for the operational unit. They're uh, bought in and invested to what they do. And we were surrounded by guys who've done absolutely miraculous things and just getting to surround yourself with that type of uh, caliber of instructor was, was amazing. But we made sure that early on our guys knew to just keep it professional. You know, it's, it's always easy um, from a leadership or an instructor standpoint to let the reins out a little bit, but it, you don't want to have to tighten them up right off the bat. And so ensuring that we just started off on the right foot was big for us, you know, just keeping it professional and then uh, making sure that we had our stuff together, right time, right place, right uniform uh, kind of thing so that they, they could relax with us a little bit and um, it would, you know, ease into a more conducive learning environment, which, which it did. Awesome. This is often hard to talk about for guys who come on the podcast, but I think it's important. I think the guys who are out there wondering if this is the right move for them, I think OTC sometimes is this scary beast for them. It's another pipeline that they have to go through and they thought they were done with the pipelines. 
honestly, to me, though, the way you're describing it, I hope they hear that it's it's nothing of the sort. Uh, but describe some of the things that people struggle with during OTC that you saw during your class, and what are some successful ways that they managed that or overcame that as they move through the process? Yeah, I think um, one one thing coming in everybody talked about was the temple that OTC would have, and um, I had a kind of unique experience at 320th where I was I was gone 290 and then 280. Uh, days out of the uh, two years leading up to me transferring wow. over to um, <laughs> 724 and so for me it was a slower tempo actually um, but for a lot of guys it was an increased tempo and so just uh, kind of supporting the families back home was was hard but um, I think that's something that you're able to alleviate by building that tight-knit uh, team and family environment where a lot of the wives would get together and, and do things together and that would help alleviate a lot of the stress on on the operator side of the house because they had that network to fall back on and um, you know especially PCSing and moving to new location where you may not know um, people I think that was one of the bigger stressors was just that family environment you know uh, uprooting your family putting them in a new location so the quicker you can build those bonds between your teammates and, and between their families, I think that makes things a lot easier. And then um, when a wife or, you know, kid needs something or maybe somebody needs a babysitter, they have that network to reach out on and, and that's not such a stressor on us and it, it frees us up to focus on what we're there to do and, and that's become better operators. Yeah, beautiful. I think it's important to let the audience know that we're, we're like any other organization. We try to right size. We try to cut out fluff where we can. Um, and we, for your OTC, we obviously cut out a lot of white space. For people who don't know what white space is, that's time off in between trips, um, downtime to where guys can recover. We cut a lot of that out, um, and we probably realized we cut too much of that out. So I think your OTC was a unique um, example of just getting slammed by the ops tempo. And we have since we're pulling back out a little bit and extending it more, add more white space into this next one. Um, yeah. But I appreciate how you guys managed the families during that too, because you're right. And they're half of, as I go out and recruit, I'm really recruiting families. The guys, most of the guys want to come here. The families are worried about the ops tempo when they, when they get here. So it is something that is, it, we are very concerned about at the unit and we have a whole staff, a whole human performance staff, who is here for the families and the operators uh, to keep them operating at peak level. So any, any interaction with the HPO staff as, as you were proceeding through OTC? Um, you know what? I had a couple injuries here and there that led me to go see some, uh, some of the therapists, uh, physical therapists and um, just the response you'd get from them and the availability that they would ensure that you had to them was amazing. I mean, it was no matter what time of day you messaged or text like, hey, can I get in and see you? Um, it was always a yes. And, and they worked with you to make sure that you were getting the care and the attention that you needed. And so I'd never personally been surrounded by an HP staff quite uh, as accommodating, um, except for maybe, you know, in, in uh, collegiate, collegiate hockey, mm -hmm. you know, we had a similar, but uh, yeah, everybody was uh, super, you know, they, they were on board with, hey, we're, our mission is to ensure you guys are able to do what you need to do and, and are able to safely train. And so they 
they were there for us and, and we had um, strength conditioning coaches who, who helped build programs around our busy schedules and, and kept kept us fit and kept us in shape and healthy as well. And and then you had, uh, you know, Ben who, who did a lot of the sports psychology uh, type things and he'd always be coming into some of our workouts with some weird bells and whistles and, and getting you to do some pretty funky stuff. But yeah, it was good. <laughs> Yeah, I love Ben, um, and I love Coach Curtis too. Coach Curtis is a strength coach assigned to OTC, and though I rib on him a lot, and it's well deserved. Um, oh yeah, his relationship with the class is unbeatable to me. I think there's just a bond that's built there between you guys that that really benefit everybody. Yeah, absolutely, and um, yeah, we had you know you, you, everybody gets bumps and bruises here and there, and some some injuries, and and. Um, you know, we had we had a couple guys who you know tore up some knees, but other than that, we for the most part they kept us healthy. Awesome. Um, how can guys? We talked about the burnout a little bit, but I just want to want to give guys some tools here because you are you just experienced a shorter condensed version of OTC. There wasn't less training. Again, like we said, there was just less less white space. How can guys come up and avoid that burnout personally um, as they're going back-to-back trips? Um, you know, I, I think it's just ensuring, um, and this kind of comes from leadership, comes from you, just ensuring that uh, you're efficient with what you're doing. So um, everybody needs to be pulling towards, uh, you know, team gear and then individual gear and doing that. And we, we made sure that guys were not spending time at work that did, did not need to be. And so I think just being efficient with what you do, but really kind of talking about burnout, like I don't, I don't think I experienced a lot of burnout. And I think it's because the training was, was extremely enjoyable. You know, I mean, it was high stress and, and high impact at times, but I think it was some of the best training that I had been a part of. And so the whole time, man, I was looking forward to each and every trip and looking forward to growing and, and learning new skill sets and, you look at, I'd, I'd never ever in my life seen uh, a jump program run kind of like our jump train up had been where you're getting six jumps a day. Like I'd, I'd never even heard of that. And, um, you know, you're not, you're not getting burned out because of all the resources you have available to you to help you uh, manage that. Yeah, I love it. Um, so des- describe this for me. Mitch came to OTC last summer at a baseline, the Mitch that left that validation exercise and graduated, what is the difference? I think it's night night and day. Um, you talk about from an educational standpoint, we got to do a lot of um, GFC block was a eye-opening experience. It was kind of uh, looking at more strategic and operational level things and, and getting to understand kind of how um, – how everything is dictated through, you know, the uh, national defense strategy, national mission strategy, or, or military strategy, and then the national security strategy, and kind of how we trickle that down into um, what is our mission statement here, and um, how that's applied, and, and looking at different things, and learning to leverage different resources and different um, groups, and I think, yeah, it's, it's night and day um, where I'm at now comparatively to you know, last year. And I'm hoping that's the same thing when I look back on, you know, where I was now comparatively to, you know, next year. Um, as far as operator skill sets, I think 
uh, again, night and day. Um, you know, just, just getting those reps, getting those iterations and getting to focus on developing as an operator was extremely important. And uh, I'm very comfortable with, with where I'm at now and, and excited to continue to expand that. Yeah, so imagine you're on a stage, because really you kind of are right now on the podcast, but imagine you're on a stage and you're talking to every possible um, interested candidate to come into special warfare as an officer, and you're talking to every officer. What does the 724 offer them um, in their career path, and and why should or should they not um, make this at least a stopping point on that path? Um as far as special warfare as a whole, I think we have a very good product. I would argue that um, the guys that I have worked with in, in comparison to some of the Army teams or the Navy teams that I've had the ability to work with, we have extremely, extremely smart individuals who um, are very oriented at problem solving, oriented at understanding the big picture. And we also have a smaller force, which I would argue is a little bit more maneuverable. Um, as you look at shifting focus on problem sets, I think the guys coming up to the 724 now are going to have to really be oriented and in, in operating in, in super denied environments and understanding that um, a lot of the problems that we're up against are, are being developed and, and you need to have a open mind and have the ability to reach out and pursue solutions and so I think that is the huge attraction to me right now with with my job is that I I truly feel that I have a large influence and have the ability to kind of shape the way in which we are headed and so I think uh, from an officer standpoint as well coming up and garnishing and gaining this perspective uh, is something that you would not get anywhere else. Mitch this has been an absolute blast for me but as we come to the end Anything, any uh, saved rounds that you have left out there that you want to get out? Um, no, I mean, it's just um, a lot of guys are, um, I talk to a lot of guys about, you know, selection or, you know, coming into special warfare as a whole. And I think a lot of guys are intimidated to try. And I think it's just important to get over that. And there's nothing wrong with failing um, as long as you learn from it and grow from it. And I think some of the best lessons are learned through failure. Um, I've had some monumental failures, and, and it's it's allowed me to grow as an officer, as an operator, as an individual. And um, just having having the balls essentially to, to put yourself out there and, and be vulnerable is important. I'd, a lot of guys talk about um, when you know interested coming into special warfare you know well i'm not a very good swimmer and and my thing was dude no nobody was a worse swimmer than i was coming <laughs> in you know like there it's not a, there's not a chance i didn't understand like i couldn't comprehend how somebody could swim more than one lap at a time like i didn't understand how that was physically possible yeah you know and that was i think eight weeks out from phase two selection you know and i, I was barely barely able to, you know, swim that 1500. I mean, that was uh, just about a death sentence every time I do it. And wow. I remember one of my uh, mentors at selection doing the underwaters, I, I came out of the pool and, you know, I wanted it so bad it didn't pop. I wasn't good. And um, 
I got done and he was like, man, I, I wanted to pass out watching you. You were so bad in the water. Like I, I've never seen anybody take 40 strokes to get to the other end. And, you know, and, um, so I, I think it's just understanding that every day is, is an opportunity to grow and an opportunity to learn. One of my favorite quotes from my, uh, my old man is, um, I'm better today than I am tomorrow, or I'm sorry, I'm better today than I was yesterday and I'll be better tomorrow than I am today. And that, that's something that I've always kind of lived with. And um, I don't have to be the best or where I need to be now as long as I'm continuing that, that growth. So um, feel free it, to put dude. yourself out there. Love it, dude. Love the message. All right, Mitch, it has been awesome. All right, y'all, that is the wrap for week two, episode three of the Insight Through Experience podcast. Stick with us. Come back and visit us next week. And Mitch, we appreciate it, buddy. Yeah, no worries. I appreciate it.